This is the Kratom Science Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. Dr. Abhishek Sharma studied pharmacy and pharmacokinetics in India before coming to the United States to research under Kratom expert Dr. Bonnie Avery. He now researches Kratom with Dr. Christopher McCurdy at University of Florida as part of the Translational Drug Development Corps. You have your uh, background in pharmacokinetics, so what made you uh, interested in, in going into that field? So basically, I, I did my PhD in 2015 and I moved to the States to do my postdoctoral studies with Dr. Boni Avery at uh, University of Mississippi. Yeah. And Dr. Boni Avery and Dr. Christopher McCurdy are the experts in the, in the cotton research. So I started working with uh, Dr. Avery and I, I just liked that, uh, that work and I'm still pursuing it. So we received uh, lots of cotton samples from the market and we looked for uh, opioids, uh, illicit substances, synthetic cannabinoids, and just want to just want to like we just want to make sure like there is nothing bad going on, and then we we find out like there was seven hydroxymetrazoline, and all this thing uh, uh, like forwarded us to to study all the cotton alkaloids uh, further, and then we got uh, two NIH grants from the NIDA, so. That's why I did all this uh, research is. Yeah, I think uh, University of Florida is the one university in the world, other than Malaysia, that's doing the uh, m- most of the kratom studies in the world. Uh, most of the ones that we see come from University of Florida, um, and and you uh, work with Dr. McCurdy in the uh, Translational Drug Development Corps. Um, can you talk about? what that is and and is the goal to develop uh kratom maybe into a pharmaceutical so i will i will i will tell you like we have a uh, the kratom grant is uh, grants are funded for funded to dr lance mcmohan who is a chair of department of pharmacodynamics mm-hmm. and dr christopher mccurdy so we have a team of chemists biologists and then behavioral pharmacologists, pharmacokineticists, veterinarian, and as well as clinicians. So uh, from isolating a uh, isolating an alkaloid to put it like uh, we have taken it up to like dog studies. So that's uh, that's like that's the capability we have at the University of Florida. We can do clinical trial if if we want to. Now translational drug development core. Uh, why? So, Translational Drug Development Core was established in the 2017 uh, when Dr. Avery and Dr. McCurdy moved to University of Florida. Mm-hmm. And overall objective of uh, this core is to develop uh, to develop molecules like you know in academic setups we have lots of active molecule, but uh, those molecules just get published and never persuaded further. So, in the Translational Development Core was envisioned to do all the pharmacokinetic studies, toxicology studies, which are required for IND submission. And the same way we are working with crotal alkaloids. So our objective is to, to, so our objective is to generate the data related to crotal alkaloid as well as crotal as a whole. So 
people can see because if you look in the in the surroundings there are two kind of personalities are there so one is clear crotum supporter and second one who are who are opposing the crotum especially regulatory agencies mm-hmm. but there is there is no way who is looking about the signs like okay is it really effective or not that's the question is it really toxic is it causing dependence what is happening what about its metabolites can it cause any drug drug interactions so our objective is to do the real science and then decide what should we do with it so translational drug development core gave us capability to do analytical bioanalytical and uh, to do pharmacokinetic studies at the university of florida so i'm looking at uh just a few of the studies that you worked on and i have some questions about um a few questions on each one of them um the one uh, came out last year was uh, assessing the therapeutic potential and toxicity of mitragynous speciosia and uh, opioid use disorder. It said uh, substantially high levels of 7-hydroxymetragenine and alkaloid with abuse potential in commercial kratom products may be the cause of the harm that's been associated with kratom use in the United States. I guess they're not seeing the harm in Malaysia and maybe Thailand where where kratom is uh, grown grown naturally um, but it, it seems that the seven hydroxymetragenine there's elevated levels of that and products that get over here is is that from um, purposeful adulteration or does that come from what happens in the drying process you know mitragynine is a partial biased opioid agonist but mitragynine do not cause, according to the literature, it doesn't cause any opioid addiction or withdrawal symptom, or it cannot be replaced with morphine for morphine dependence. But while you come to 7-hydroxymitragynine, it is uh, like more potent, way potent than uh, mitragynine, and it causes all those problems which uh, other opioids can do. So that's the thing. But now question is, do we have 7-hydroxymitragynine in sufficient amount but when we look so we had a we had lots of samples from malaysia like fresh crotum samples mm-hmm. so we analyzed those for 11 crotum alkaloids not just mitragynine and 7 hydroxymitragynine but also other alkaloids and mm-hmm. we have not seen any amount of 7 hydroxymitragynine in any of the fresh crotum products we we, we received some of the crotum juice which they sell there, so they make fresh juice and sell in the in the Malaysia area. We have not seen 7-hydroxymetragine in there as well. Now the question is, uh, but we are seeing here. So now question is, okay, is it uh, intentional or not intentional? I cannot answer that thing. There are only certain vendors can answer that, but I can only tell certain things. So if you put it, you put metragine in over time, you put uh, some kind of uh, oxidizing agent like uh, hydrogen peroxide or potassium permanganate, it will convert to 7-hydroxymetragynine. So there are multiple ways to make it, but I cannot say that they intentionally or not intentionally, but if we will have higher 7-hydroxy content in our cotton products, so that's will cause the problem. That may cause the problem. So one more thing I would say, the, not only 7-hydroxymetragynine is a minor protomalkaloid, it is also a 
metabolite of mitragyne. Yeah. So that is also uh, a, a, like an important thing to understand. And it uh, metabolizes uh, comparatively slowly in humans, but we found a novel pathway in which 7-hydroxymitragyne uh, in itself metabolized in human, uh, converted to mitragyne in pseudoendoxyl in human plasma. So that's uh, another mystery. So according to the available data right now, we have in, in animal models, we have seen problems associated with 7-hydroxymitragyne, but it will be hard to predict in, in human till we have a, a like clinical trial, controlled clinical trial. That was my next question um, about the metabolism, because I know it was uh, one study that I believe uh, Andrew Krugel worked on that showed that uh, mitragynine actually metabolizes in the 7-hydroxymitragynine, and it also showed, I think, that the 7-hydroxy stayed constant. So my question about that was, well, does it matter then what you start with if if uh, the seven hydroxy stays constant and the mitragynine is going to be metabolized into seven hydroxy mitragynine? So that if you read uh, that study, that study has a a, a a drawback. Okay. So so you put mitragynine in liver microsomes. So liver microsomes is a is you isolate the metabolic enzymes out of the liver microsomes, right? So our body has two kind of uh, metabolic enzymes. So one is called phase one metabolism, another one called phase two metabolism. So phase one metabolism is a, is a simple chemical reaction like oxidation, reduction, hydrolysis. And phase two metabolism, metabolism means the body, the liver will add a polar group to the to the molecule or its metabolite. That's like glucuronoid or, or certain amino acids. Mm -hmm. So the study was performed in that particular study. The study was performed in liver microsomes and liver microsomes cannot do that phase two reaction. And when we look at the structure of the 7-hydroxymitragynine, it has a free hydroxyl group. So it is very prone to go a glucuronoid metabolism. Mm -hmm. So that is study is like half part of the metabolism because you are not looking at the full metabolism. But yes, it is true. Mitragynine converts to 7-hydroxymitragynine, but 7-hydroxymitragynine also metabolized to further in 9-O-demethylated metabolite, 9-hydroxy metabolites. So this is a debatable question. And uh, we did certain experiments in hepatocytes, like human hepatocytes and dog hepatocytes, rat hepatocytes, to understand like what is the rate of formation and then further metabolism of it. I'm, I'm, we are not impressed with that much with that hypothesis that mitragynine is converting to 7-hydroxy, and the whole therapeutic activity is coming because of 7-hydroxy mitragynine. Does this lead to adverse drug interactions when, you know, kratom possibly or mitragynine can possibly slow the metabolism of other drugs? Is that is that what's happening? So when we look at the structure of mitragynine, there is a possibility it can meta it can create certain reactive metabolites. There is a possibility. I cannot say for sure. Mm -hmm. If that case happens, it inhibits certain SIP enzymes. So in case of mitragynine the, and another carotid alkaloid, corine anthony, they inhibit CYP2B6. But our body need, needs a certain concentration to inhibit that. So 
So there are two, two or three cases. If you look at the, there is a clinical study published by Thai group, the pharmacokinetics of nitrogynin in men. In that particular, that's like they did the pharmacokinetic study in, in native Trotum users, and they analyzed their plasma samples for nitrogynin content. And you look at look at that data. So the maximum concentration of nitrogynin in those. Healthy, volunt healthy volunteers who were taking crotum was around 120 nanogram per mm. So that particular concentration is not sufficient enough to inhibit enzymes. But if we look at the few of the, the casualties associated in the United States, so there is a young guy uh, died in Florida uh, and the forensic, so forensic science, the people told that the plasma concentration of mitragynin was 1800 nanogram per mm. So that's the problem. Another, uh, there was a, there is a, I read a news report or media report in, in, in that one, a Tupper Lake police officer died and they said, okay, Cartum may be responsible for that. And the plasma concentration of mitragynin was 3500 nanogram per mm. So now this difference between the Thai study and these two casualties is like 17 to 190 times higher now. So if we will reach that much concentration, that's going to create a problem. So everything, even we drink too much water, that is going to cause a problem. That same rule applies to here. So we have to control or we have to think what we are taking and how much should we take it, right? So that's mm -hmm. the concern. So up to certain concentration, no problem. If you go beyond that, beyond that concentration in the long term, it is going to inhibit your SIP enzymes. And if you have taken any other drug along with it, it will stay longer in your body. Mm -hmm. And that rule that rule applies vice versa as well. So uh, I, I don't remember if you have seen a news report in, in April 2019 published in USA Today with a, with a broad headline written, Herbal drug cotton linked to almost 100 overdose deaths, CDC yeah. says. Yeah. So if you read that news and then you read whole news and you come down, and the last line written is, in most of the cotton related deaths, fentanyl was also a cause of death. Yes. Now, now as a pharmacokineticist, if I look at the what can happen if I will take mitragynin with fentanyl, what is going to happen? So according to the publications, mitragynin is a PGP inhibitor. So PGP is a transporter which cleans uh, certain drugs out of our brain. It does the same thing with fentanyl. Mm -hmm. right? So if I took fentanyl and along with I took mitragynin, then what is going to happen? My body is not going to, my brain is not going to clear that fentanyl and it will stay there forever. And that's the problem associated with this thing. So so whenever we are taking, so herbs are not always safe. So we always have to think about herb and drug interaction. And yes, mitragynin is prone to do, prone to cause herb and drug interaction. And we have to take it carefully if we are taking more than one drug. There was a study uh, about lyophilized kratom tea that uh, came out last year that we talked about on the podcast, but but I know it was a study in mice, but you uh, calculated for a human equivalent dose. Um, a lot of the studies seem to give mice like very massive amounts of uh, mitragynine, and and that kind of shows 
it shows that they would get damaged, but it's the amounts are so high that people don't take um, those amounts. And, um, and and just a broader question, um, you know, these studies are in animals, so human beings' uh, metabolism is different. Um, a broader question would be how important it is to do uh, clinical trials on on uh, humans and just instead of just uh, animal trials. I will I will answer both of your questions. So first question is how did we calculate the the human the mouse equivalent dose for from the human dose, right? Mm-hmm. Can we reach at certain concentration to have that problem in Malaysia, Thailand? No, never. You will never achieve. You have to eat kilos to achieve those like that high yeah. concentration which I was talking about the problematic. Mm-hmm. But when you come to United States look at the Crotum products. So you can see there are multiple products who are who are organic extract. So first thing, we have a leaf. Then you boil it, you make a water extract. That's a different thing. But when you boil it with certain solvent system to isolate that alkaloid-rich fraction and put it in a capsule, then it is going to, you can reach that. If you, I will take 20 capsule of those, I will, I will reach those very high concentration, which can cause the problem. So we have to think about it. So the, the, there is a simple way. So we we drink our coffee, right? We boil it and we drink it. Mm-hmm. But we don't take coffee capsules, yeah. right? Or we, we can take caffeine, but that will have a different effect, right? And same rule applies here. So you, you drink, you boil your tea. It's a little bit, it's absolutely different than the organic extracts available in the marketplace. Those are very highly, I, I call those a standardized extract because they're contained, never change. You analyze those every time, you will get the same metrogenic content. Even we are using few of those extracts to isolate our alkaloids because it is cheaper to isolate those extracts from the leaf than those, those capsules. Mm-hmm. So just think about it, like how those differences there. You will take one kilo of crotum tea will equal to like 20 capsules. So that's the problem. So that's why I'm saying like, yes, you can achieve it, but think carefully what are we taking. Mm-hmm. So your, uh, and your second question was related to that lyophilized crotum tea. If, can you translate it to animals, to humans? Mm-hmm. So yes, we have seen uh, a absolutely different metabolism between rodents and human in human system but if you want to do a clinical trial you need to have one rodent data and one non-rodent data to do toxicity study and if you can achieve certain certain exposure in human yes you can do it in, in control where everything will be controlled you will standardize your product you will have chain of custody your products has been standardized for all everything like heavy metals, pesticides, apolotoxins, benzopyrenes, and uh, minor alkaloids as well. It looked like uh, kratom was shown to the lyophilized kratom tea was shown to be advantageous over uh, methadone or opioids to actually um, for uh, withdrawal and to. Uh, uh, get off of opioids um, it, and it said uh, these results support the anecdotal claim that kratom produces less physical dependence um, than uh, mu opioid receptor agonists like morphine so how was the kratom shown to be advantageous over other methods to treat opioid dependence 
So uh, if you think about like what people give for, what, what we need for any opioid dependence or opioid withdrawal symptom, like what kind of treatment do we need? So what is in marketplace is either they will give you give a weak opioid agonist, so it will occupy the receptor, but will not cause, will not activate that particular pathway to which is responsible for the problem. The second treatment is you give alpha-2, you will go through alpha-2 agonist properties, <laughs> like, like uh, you, you do clonidine, you do lofexidine. But when you look at the mitragynine molecule and you look at the mitragynine receptor binding data, so mitragynine is a, so first thing, mitragynine is a partial opioid agonist, right? So partial, you give any amount of mitragynine, the maximum effect you can achieve is 40% of any full opioid agonist like Damgo or morphine. So it will never, you will never reach at that particular high thing. Then it, it shows activity through alpha-2 receptor. The same activity you get, get it through, through clonidine and lofexidine. And then it acts through serotonin receptor and as well as dopamine. So the mitragynin itself is a combination of four drugs, given the four different receptor binding, receptor occupancy thing, receptor binding thing, which you need to treat opioid withdrawal. And that is the advantage this molecule have. It's like you you mixed four drugs in a treatment therapy to get to treat the opioid dependence, and you can get the same thing in with one mitragynine molecule, right? So that is mm -hmm. the difference. That is the basic difference. Kratom T may be acting through non-opioid means, uh, such as the alpha two adrenergic receptor, which you mentioned. Um, the fact that it acts on so many of the uh, receptors is that maybe why people say kratom helps them abstain from uh, not just opioids but alcohol and cocaine, methamphetamine. Some people say is is it because it acts on so many different receptors? So one thing I will tell you, like I'm not expert in the pharmacodynamics, but I will tell you one thing. So first of all, we always have one problem with we replace, we replace mitragynine with the crotum. So first of all, we have to think about it. So crotum is a composition of like at least 40 different alkaloids. Yeah. And we have seen if we, when we study individual alkaloid, we saw it covers like almost whole spectrum. I cannot comment on it. Like, is it going to treat uh, cocaine, uh, cocaine, cocaine mm -hmm. withdrawal, or cocaine dependence, or is it going to treat alcohol dependence or not? But it, I would only say it will. The most of the alkaloids covers like broad CNS targets, mm -hmm. so it can theoretically. But uh, we need systemic studies to to like we should take caution before claiming anything, right? We should do systemic studies and animal models. And if we are seeing any activity, then we can say that. So again, I will say mitragynine and 7-hydroxymitragynine are not the only opioid active component in the mitragynine. Mm -hmm. So we have a recent study accepted in Journal of, like recently you will, you will see it in Journal of Nature Product, should be paper should be out in one or two weeks. And in that study, we, we studied different different other alkaloids apart from mitragynine and 7-hydroxymitragynine. And you can see it, it has like 7-hydroxy is not only the mu, selective mu opioid, uh, showing mu opioid activity, there are multiple.
like for example, corinoxine, like two-digit micromolar activity and mu opioid receptor. But will it survive in in vivo? That's the question. Because you can have, so very simple answer. In, in test tube, I can see the activity because compound is binding to the receptor. But again, the same question, can this molecule can cross the blood brain barrier or not? Will it, will it survive by the liver for a long, long time to, to cause any, any pharmacological activity? That is also the important question about it. So Clotum has a polypharmacology and we have to study it one by one. Then only we can say, okay, this can do that or this cannot do that. Right? Yeah, yeah, and I was just looking at um, the study we did for our last podcast, which I think just came out. It was the investigation of the adrenergic and opioid binding affinities that showed how various alkaloids uh, bind to various receptors. And um, I just had a question in general just about the process of uh, plasma protein binding properties. What do we learn about when uh, we look at uh, plasma protein binding? So, okay. So think about one thing. So we, whenever a compound is circulating through the blood, only the free, the, the molecule which is, uh, which is uh, traveling freely can only bind with the receptor. Mm-hmm. Right. So in, in our body, the the compound, we have lots of plasma proteins like albumin, globulin. So when molecule, ha- any molecule have affinity to those, it will bind to that molecule. And then this is a reversible process. So it's, a, it's kind of equilibrium. So for example, my molecule has 99% protein binding. So if, if I have 100 molecules in my systemic circulation, 99 will bound to the plasma and then only one will be available for the metabolism as well as for the therapeutic activity. But as soon as this molecule is metabolized by the liver, then that 99's equilibrium will move in that that direction. And then instead of 99% bound, it will be 98.101 and then 0.99 will again come out. So this will sometimes it, it affect the compounds overall exposure but uh, this is an important parameter to calculate like the therapeutic activity and dose and doses resume. Like how much free concentration do you need to achieve to occupy that many receptors? Or like that, that's why we need this data. The uh, other uh, one that we talked about on the podcast was the um, the study of uh, the trees that were in the greenhouse uh, that that you have down there in Florida. And um, as far as we could tell, that was the first study of actual trees that were grown for the purpose of looking at the alkaloids. Um, what uh, part did you uh, work on in this study? It was uh, effects of nutrient yeah. fertility. So my part was to do analysis. So once we have leaf, then uh, Dr. McCurdy's medicinal chemistry lab will do the extraction of those leaves. And then I will have those extracts and I quantified all those uh, leaf material for the clotum alkaline contains, like mitragynin, spaciogynin, spaciociliatin, all, all of those. And well, and it seems like there wasn't a lot of uh, uh, 
some of the alkaloids that are in the commercial kratom products it, was it do you think the young age of the trees accounted for that or was there any other factors so i will i will tell you one thing i have few samples yeah this is right so there are anecdotal evidences or not anecdotal like there is a way in malaysia that they don't use a kratom product up to certain year and then they start harvesting after certain time mm-hmm. but no no systemic study has been performed yeah that might be the reason here but we have seen few uh, when we got few samples from malaysia and we saw few of those cotton product don't have any metronine so it's like you have hemp versus marijuana but both are effective and that's why i want to say Mitragynine is not a kratom, and kratom is not a mitragynine. Mm-hmm. There are different alkaloids which are also responsible for the activities. What do you think accounts for the different rates of alkaloids found in some of the native plants? Because in this study, it uh, they mentioned uh, towards the in the discussion section, I think that uh, you know there's a 66 percent. Uh, Mitragynine in Thailand and a different percentage in Malaysia and they found some plants in the Philippines that had virtually no of uh, Mitragynine. What do you think uh, accounts for uh, the way that even the native plants are different? So it's a it's a like it's kind of different phenotypes like you have cannabis sativa right both uh, you have marijuana and you have, you have hemp Mm-hmm. So one is making THC, another one is making CBD. The same process is going on. So we know, we know, we know, know the two pathways, and you will see it uh, sometime in, in whenever we publish it. So they go, they follow two different pathways. One pathway will go through mitragynine one, and another pathway will go through the another alkaloid. I just don't want to disclose it, but uh, yes, we know what is the if you don't have metragynin, then what will you have it? We know that. We have that information. This was uh, from a 2018 study, Comparative Pharmacokinetics of Metragenine After Oral Administration. Um, is it because of the metabolism um, that it that metragynine even alone works better, works, has stronger effects orally than intravenously? So there are three ways to take metragynine, right? So one way you have you, I will take mitragynine only. I will go to FDA, I will submit IND, and I will do a clinical trial, and I will come up, hey, take mitragynine pills or capsules, and it will treat your XYZ disease. The second way to take it is you go to the marketplace and you buy a crotum capsule, which contains uh, organic extracts, mm-hmm. concentrated organic extracts. And third way is like a Malaysian way, where you boil it in the water, and drink the juice. Mm-hmm. So these are the three ways by which you can take the mitragynine. And fourth, you give intravenous injection for the oral availability purposes to calculate which route has maximum exposure in the systemic circulation. So in this study, we gave equal dose of mitragynine, but in one group of rat, there was just mitragynine. Second group of rat, it was mitragynine along with other alkaloid-rich fractions, and third one is mitragynine along with other water-soluble extract. Other, like, because there was, in one study, there is only mitragynine, and in other two studies, there were other alkaloids as well. So that's the reason we saw the better exposure 
when we gave organic extract or lyophilization. So there are two possibilities. One possibility, if the other components present in the crotum T or organic extract have increased the absorption, right? The increase, the change, the permeability, increase the solubility of that compound in the systemic circulation, or they inhibited the metabolism of mitragynin. So that's why it could survive longer than the mitragynin alone. The, the third question, the second question you asked is IV mitragynin can be more potent than oral? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. Because oral viability of mitragynin is around, uh, we have done multiple study, it ranged from 20% to 40%. It depends what formulation give, you gave and what was the product you are using. So it means you are when you give it orally, you can maximum get 40% of mitragynin in your systemic circulation, while in IV it will be immediately available. Now the, the difference is metragynin metabolizes to 7-hydroxymetragynin through CYP3A4. And in our intestine is a rich source of CYP3A4. So when you give it orally, there is a very good chances that you will have better exposure of 7-hydroxymetragynin then you give it oral, then you give it intravenously. So if you count for the 7-hydroxymetragynin is adding the effect, that is the only argument why which we can say that it is more active when we give it oral. But that study doesn't have any pharmacological activity. It, it has pharmacokinetics only. We were looking how much metragynin is systemically available through the in the in the system in the in the system uh this is a 2019 paper uh quantification of 10 key kratom alkaloids um in leaf extracts and commercial products it said uh the amount of mitragynine present in the samples analyzed by uh previous methods may have overestimated the levels of mitragynine um this uh, was toward the end of the article, and, and what was the previous method of analysis that caused overestimations of mitragynine, and and how did the uh, new analysis change that? So if you open that paper, you you looked at the chemical structures, right? There is a there is a there are ten alkaloidal structures are there, mm -hmm. and you if you look closely at mitragynine, spatiogynine, spatioceliatine, and mitraceliatine. By a normal eyes, you cannot find any difference. Mm -hmm. You need like uh, really good eyes to find the difference. So those these four molecules are diatomers. So they are absolutely same in their structure. They are like uh, identical twins. So they are absolutely same in their structure. Their molecular weights are same. Their physical chemical properties are same. But the hydrogen at position three is either below the plane or above the plane. And there is an ethylene group at the 20th position, which can be below the plane or above the plane, which make those four different alkaloids. So if I'm, I'm using, for example, triple quad mass spec to analyze my mitragynine, and my chromatography is not good enough to separate these four, mitragynine, spatiogynine, spatioceliatine, and mitraceliatine, I will quantify all those as a mitragynine. And that's the problem occurred earlier. So people have quantified uh, total mitragynin content. So that mitragynin was not only mitragynin, 
it was also having spacioxanin, spacioxanin, and metrosilatin oh, okay. because those are like those are identical structure. They are diastomers. So if, only in 3D plane, their structure is same. But if you look at the paper, you have to look at it very carefully. They have same molecular weight and same fragment. When you break it through the collision energy and mass spec, they will give you. There is no difference in all four. You have to use a better chromatography to separate these four. Did that have any effect of uh, maybe uh, some of the toxicity studies and uh, autopsies of people who had uh, mitragynine yes. in their blood? Yes. It did. Okay. Yes, it, there is a possibility. Yeah. In many of the many of the studies, because uh, there is no way when you look at their chromatograms in different reports published, you will see only one peak. This is only possible when I'm taking mitragynine only. But if I'm taking a crotum product, then I should have all four diastomers in my systemic circulation. And if I'm not seeing four peaks in that chromatogram, it means I have, quant- I have merged all four to quantify it as a mitragynine. Uh, due to the vari- great variation range of the alkaloid content between kratom samples and commercial products, it- it's necessary to standardize the dose and the regimen of kratom products, and t- and the developed analytical method can be helpful towards this goal. So this speaks to the issue that uh, w- a lot of kratom consumers bring up, where they have a certain product and it it has a certain effect and then they change products and it has a completely different effect um do you think it's important to uh, pass this uh these uh, laws that require uh, lab testing of these products so law wise I mean, i'm i'm not I, I don't want to comment on the law i have okay. concern with the import ban so i don't want this import ban this because the import ban Crotum is coming in the U.S. market with illegitimate ways. Mm-hmm. Like you must we agree with that, and that's why it makes it bad, bad thing. If things will come properly at the at the checkpoints, crotum has been tested for. Like we we receive millions of like food material and all those supplies around the globe. Then why can't we have this crotum? So FDA should do like systemic studies or fund those who can. Who, who can do systemic trials? Either allow it or or completely do the do the full stop thing. And I don't think there is any way they can do the full stop thing. But they should they should like I, I don't understand the meaning of import ban. And I think this is the major cause behind these all these problems are happening. Mm-hmm. And now second question you asked. So yes, we need a standardization of cotton product like we do with all other herbal supplements. Yeah. So our product, so for example, the it was, the crotum was grown in farm XYZ, and that farm XYZ, uh, the farmer is using pesticides. Now, are we testing our crotum supplies here for pesticides? I'm not sure if everybody is doing it. Mm. And because some people may have their body have the capability to metabolize those pesticides sometimes, but here you may not because you are eating a different kind of food than than other parts of the world is eating. So their their capability, their SIP expression, their enzyme expression is different. Mm-hmm. So our capacity of metabolizing certain drugs 
is also depend. It depends on our races, our genetics, and and lots of stuff. So same rule applies here. So if we have control thing, or if we can grow cotton within the United States with the with the equal potency of cotton alkaloid, like that's the best best thing can happen. In that case, you can control everything. Like in in nicotine industry, in cigarette industry, they they control everything. I'm not comparing these two both, but I'm just like tea industry is the best example. Mm-hmm. So they are maintaining their quality. You drink it ten years ago, you drink it today, you will get the same flavor and taste because they are maintaining that quality. Yeah. But this rule doesn't apply to the cotton, and the major reason is the raw material supply. And that's why, and the, I have we have seen these minor cotton alkaloid. Few of these are really very potent. And if their numbers are up and down, you will have different effect. You can have certainly different activity. On like you may feel different. So that's why we we asked, but we should standardize the cotton product before putting those in market shelf. I cannot comment on it the the rule and regulation part. Because uh, there are multiple things uh, associated with it, but yes, this is our moral responsibility as well as whom. So the cotton user should be should make sure they are they are getting the right product, because we have seen multiple cases where cotton product has been spiked with synthetic cannabinoids. We have seen odysmethyl tramadol, lots of psychoactive substances. Even in, in our lab, Dr. Avery's lab. Uh, we saw the product was spiked with hydrocodone. Okay. So there are multiple things uh, going on, but I'm not seeing this thing from like last one year. So the cotton market is improving. Vendors are putting the certificate of analysis along with their product on their websites, but uh, there are a few bad guys also there. So that's why this standardization is required and somebody should take the in- initiatives who are who have the power and capacity to do that. Yeah, and and I also just interviewed uh, Dr. Pragelic from uh, Chicago, and he he did this study on toxic metals. Um, have you found the toxic metal contaminants in, in any of the yes. samples? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And do you yeah, think so. is it is it maybe from uh, the grinding equipment in Indonesia? I, I cannot say for sure, but yeah. yes. Because the, sometimes we don't use food grade material to do grinding, and if we are using those stone stuff, and then and their the soil is very, very, very rich in that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. the multiple reason can be possible. That's why I'm saying like we need control farming. We have to put like U.S. standards if we are importing anywhere. Yeah, and and I guess is that I mean is that one of the reasons to. St- to uh, actually grow the kratom in the greenhouse and study it, so we can come up with uh, standards eventually, maybe for a domestic uh, kratom ag- agriculture. Yeah, that's a huge business. Uh, you know yeah. better than me, like how many, <laughs> how much money is going, and then if you have it uh, U.S. grown, then you can control it and you can improve certain things even. Yeah, you can you can work on certain varieties which are more helpful to the cotton users and according to their requirements. Are there going to be further studies from that greenhouse? Are the trees still growing there? Yeah, yeah we will have tree and we need those to fulfill our requirements. So, yeah. yes, we, will be, we should continue it until unless there is any funding issue or something else going on. 
Yeah. But if I'm seeing next three years or four years, we will have rotten trees and we will do continuous research on it and we will have farm we will help farmers as well if if somebody is interested uh, to to that kind of go want to go to in that direction. Yeah, yeah, we'll definitely be paying attention to that. And as far as uh, human clinical trials, are we close to doing doing those for uh, for kratom? So you know, clinical trials for the clinical trial thing, we have to file IND, and uh, okay. we need uh, GMP material, and uh, we need chain of custody of the material, and this is really hard to find, mm. and. Uh, you can do clinical trial with mitragynin only. That's a different thing. But uh, I think it, crotum and mitragynin are different. Yeah. So we, 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 we are actively looking for the, the suppliers and there are, there are multiple problems associated. We have to, like we have to answer certain questions even before thinking about it. But yeah, we are very much interested to do a controlled clinical trial. Products in the state of individual alcohols. Thank you, Dr. Abhishek Sharma. All the studies we talked about in this episode are cited in the description. Please like and subscribe and give us good rating and comment if you have any comments. The Kratom Science Podcast is written and produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for KratomScience.com. The music is Risey. The song is called Memories of Thailand. And take care.